Welcome to the Graphic Audio Behind the Mic podcast. These podcasts will feature author interviews and behind-the-scenes interviews with our cast, directors, and crew. Today's podcast features director Scott McCormick's interview with author Peter David. In this interview, Scott talks to Mr. David about his writing career and the inspiration behind his Sir Apropos of Nothing series, which is now being produced in Graphic Audio. Graphic Audio listeners, this is Scott McCormick. And today I'm going to be interviewing New York Times bestselling author Peter David, whose series Sir Apropos of Nothing will be coming into graphic audio at the end of this month. Welcome, Peter David. Happy to be here. First off, you know, I'm just going to say it. For me, you're kind of a living legend, and uh, I'm not going to make any apologies about that. I've read so much of your Star Trek books. I've read, I read Sir Apropos back in, in, in the 90s when it first came out, and uh, I read your runs on Aquaman and the Hulk. And uh, so for me, I've been consuming Peter David since I was a teenager, and uh, getting to speak to you is quite an honor. Well, thank you. What brings us here today is uh, Sir Apropos Nothing, and I was hoping you might be able to give our listeners a brief overview of the series, and then I'd love to know how you were inspired to write him. Apropos himself is a medieval individual who's kind of intended to be the antithesis of whatever of what every other fantasy adventure hero is all about. He is completely self-centered. He doesn't care about anyone except himself. He wants to get money wherever he can. He really doesn't give a crap who he hurts in terms of getting that money. And yet, somehow, he always manages to do exactly the right thing, even though he's always coming up with all kinds of excuses about how he's really being self-serving. So you never really know what sort of hero it is that you're dealing with as far as uh, Apropos' mindset works. He is the bastard son of a tavern whore who was raped by a group of knights one dark and stormy evening. And uh, Apropos, when he starts off the book, has no idea who his father is, which makes sense, neither does his mother. And he sets out, ultimately, to go to the court of the king, with which the knights are all associated, in order to find out who his father is and exact vengeance upon the lot of them, all while posing as being a squire. For those of us who've already read the book, we know, very funny, I mean, you talk about how he's the son of rape, but also... While that gives him a traditional sort of mythic origin, there, there are a lot of moments of levity in the story. And also, because of the first-person narrative, you also get a very keen insight into the personality of Apropos. He's absolutely selfish, but at the same time, he can't help but do the right thing. Um, what inspired you to, to write the book? I was at a convention in Wisconsin, and the character literally walked into my head fully formed. I was sitting. I was sitting at a at a gathering, and Neil Gaiman was there, and Harlan Ellison was there. And for some reason, I just found myself picturing a king's court, and I pictured these knights walking in one at a time, introducing themselves. And you know, one knight walks in and says, "I'm Sir Abelard of of the Northern Realms," and another guy walks in and says, "I'm Sir Justice of the Outer Regions." And then in my head, in walked this young guy. His right leg was messed up, and he's walking with a staff, and he says, I am apropos of nothing. (laughs) And, I mean, like I say, he just walked into my head, or limped into my head, fully formed. 
And I turned to Harlan Ellison and I said, Harlan, what would you think if I wrote a story about this young guy who is an aspiring knight, except he's a total shit, and his name is apropos of nothing? And Harlan said, that is an absolutely terrible idea. <laughs> and I said, okay. And that was all the incentive I needed to sit down and start writing the book. And the way that I wrote the book was that every day when I, when I would sit down to work, the first thing that I would do is write four to five pages of apropos. And I had absolutely no idea where the story was going. I just made it up as I went. And, you know, I'd sit down at my computer every morning. I'd say, hello, apropos. And I'd write, for, you know, a few thousand words of his adventures. And then I would go off and do other stuff. And over the course of a few of a couple of months, I wound up with several hundred pages. Mm. And I said, okay, I really have to sit down and figure out how the hell this is going to end. And I wrote, and I wrote out the plot for the rest of the book. And I wound up sending the whole thing to my agent. And he sold it to Simon Schuster. And we were off and running. Having read the book before and now having worked on, we're actually in the process of recording book two. I think that the one thing that has come across to me, having uh, explored the character and uh, the people that surround him, is just the fact that you've had so much fun. I mean, uh, some of my favorite characters include uh, Sir Granite's. The Flaming Nether Regions comes up on a fairly uh, regular yeah. basis. Are there particular characters that you, uh, besides Apropos, that you're a fan of in your story? I really liked Entropy because she was kind of like the opposite of what you would expect from a fairy tale princess. I mean, she was, you know, she was such a screaming bitch. <laughs> <coughs> Entropy was, and I just, I just became totally enamored of her. Um, so I would say that she was definitely my, my, my favorite character aside from Apropos himself. They've really grown and become the life for us, too. I'm, I'm doing, not only am I directing and adapting, but I'm also the narrator, so I get to be apropos. Okay. I pitch myself up a little bit when I'm playing the younger apropos. But um, he's been a blast to play. Now, um, there are two other books Thank in the you. series, um, Woe to Woman, yes. which is the second book, which is what right. we're recording right now. And then the third oh, okay. book, which is Tongue Lashing, which we'll be doing um, very soon. Both those will be released in 2016. But we're also going to be working on your King Arthur series, and uh, that's that's, uh, that's going to be a little bit longer down the road. I won't be um, as hands-on with that one, but I'm hoping I'll get cast in it. Um, okay. Maybe you can give an overview of that first book so we can tease our listeners so they have something to look forward to for next year. Oh, sure. Well, uh, Nightlife uh, is quite simple. The concept has always been that King Arthur will return when he is most needed, kind of like a messiah. And I decided that we could really use him now. So Arthur returns to modern-day New York City and runs for mayor. And that is the fundamental premise of nightlife. Now, what's interesting is that there are two different versions of the book. Mm -hmm. The original version was published in the 1980s. And a couple of decades later, I ran into my editor, Ginger Buchanan, at a, com at a science fiction convention. And I said to her, why don't we bring Nightlife back into print? And, you know, let me go into it and just do a pass on it so I can bring it more up to date. And she said, okay, let's do that. And I read the book, and I was completely appalled by it because it had been the best that I could write in the mid-1980s. Mm. But my skill, I'd like to think, as a writer had grown substantially since then. And I was kind of appalled by, you know, the, the corners that I had cut, you know, uh, to get the whole plot in there. That there, were, that there were shortcomings in the plot that I simply neither had the skill nor the patience to address properly. 
Mm-hmm. And I wound up doing so much rewriting on the book that the published new edition literally could have been nominated for a Hugo because the original manuscript was 50,000 words and the revised manuscript was 80,000 words. <laughs> you know, there were new characters, new plot lines. I mean, it was quite literally a wholly different story. So, yeah, like I said, I could, it could have qualified as a new work. And uh, Jennifer Buchanan so liked what I came up with that she signed me to do two sequels. Hmm. And those were uh, One Night Only and Fall of Night. You said that Arthur came back, but it's not just Arthur that comes back. His whole court yeah. comes back and begins to, to take their places around him as well. And mm-hmm. I think one of my... Fa- and I have to be honest, I can't remember if I read the original or if I read the re-do, the re, um, but one of my favorite scenes is when Marianne Le Fay comes back from... I mean, not yes. so much that she comes back, but she rediscovers her purpose. And I think that yes, that's, that's one correct. of the, that's there. I think that's one of the best written scenes in any book that, that I ever read when I was oh, that, coming yeah, along. Yeah, the, the Morgan stuff was fine. You know, that was fine. The sequence where the Lady of the Lake reemerges and says, you know, never again. You know, that that worked out. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, there were just there were just many elements to it that needed to be vastly improved, and that's you know what I wound up doing. It must be exciting sometimes to be able to revisit something and sort of say, here's an opportunity instead of just shaking your head and saying, well, that's what that was, uh, which, which yeah, I would think it, a lot it, of no, writers really would was. do. I mean, you know, it really kind of under, I really kind of was led to understand when George Lucas felt the need to revive Star Wars. Hmm. I mean, there's an old saying, I forget who said it, uh, might have been might have been Da Vinci, I don't remember, who said that art is never finished, it's only abandoned. That there's really something to be said for that. Art is something that can always be fixed more and retooled and all that kind of thing. Which made it really, really just kind of an amazing challenge for me to totally refurbish Nightlife and make it into the, the second edition of the book that sold print. Well, we're really excited to be bringing it to, to graphic audio. I don't know how aware you are of our product, but we use a full cast of actors to portray all of the characters, so you don't have Excellent. you know, one voice as the, as the narrator playing all the voices. And we also layer in sound effects and musical scoring. I'm very much looking forward to hearing Apropos. I mean, you know, I hope you guys send me one soon. Uh, Dwayne, this would be a good time to play the sample. I had no idea what had just happened or why they appeared so angry. And then I realized, from their point of view, I had just thrown the money on the floor in what could only be regarded as a gesture of utter contempt. I was about to explain, to drop to one knee and try to gather the coins up and beat a hasty retreat, and then... Oh, how dare you, you little whore's son. This, this is how you respond to my generosity. I have been patient with you, from pity for your lame state of nothing else, but my patience is done. Out. Now. For once in my life, I felt truly empowered. My head was swimming with the giddiness of the sensation. Here was a knight, a highly ranked knight, surrounded by his fellows, getting himself into an uproar owing to a perceived insult by me, an individual who was so comparatively low on the social scale of hysteria that I might as well not have existed at all. 
It was as if I, a low-born, lame son of a whore, had been elevated to peer of a knight just by dint of appearing to be an ingrate. I didn't want to let go of this power. I liked making the knights mad. I wanted to do it because it gave me a twisted pleasure to be able to affect them in that way. Here I had been, subject to their sneers and clear attitude of superiority, as if I was shit on their shoes. They weren't sneering now. No, they weren't. How dare I? How dare you? How dare you call yourselves knights and lovers of justice? I spit on your offering. I spit on you. The burly knight was trembling with rage, but he was remaining where he was. I was presupposing that these mighty soldiers wouldn't want to sully themselves attacking a mere lame peasant. Have you forgotten where you are? Who you are? Who we are? This is Sir Justice of the Highborn. I am Sir Coriolis of the Middlelands. Who do you think you are to speak to us? I? I am apropos of nothing. And as far as I'm concerned, you can kiss my lame whore son ass. I figured this was the point when they would have the gods evict me. It was only when Justice and Coriolis yanked their swords free of their scabbards that I realized I had figured wrong. Now you're going to be apropos less of nothing. Less an ear, less an arm. Or maybe I'll just relieve you of that useless leg of yours. The softness in his voice was enough to make me believe, just for a moment, that he was still giving me a chance to leave. That was another miscalculation on my part, however, for without another word, Sir Justice charged. <laughs> Although he wielded only a short sword, it made him no less dangerous, and I could see even from where I stood the razor sharpness of the blade. I also noticed, much to my surprise, that Justice was missing two fingers on his right hand. Yeah. Coriolis was coming in as well, but from a different angle and a bit slower, clearly more than happy to let Justice have the initial pleasure of carving me to bits. Naturally, I did the only thing I could under the circumstances. I ran like hell. At least that was what I tried to do. But at that moment, everything that was wrong and had ever been wrong with me caught up in one shot. My lame right leg gave out and I wasn't able to recover because a staggering spell of dizziness went through me. I tried to reverse myself to clutch onto my staff and balance myself that way, but it didn't work. Instead, I tumbled to the floor, my staff still in my hand, but otherwise helpless. One would have thought that considering the fact that I was fallen, Justice would have backed off. But there was bloodlust in his eyes, his honor too much at stake, and he didn't slow his charge in the least. He came within a couple of feet of me, and, setting himself in a stance, brought his blade up and back like a butcher about to cleave the skull of a hog. But as my vision blurred, I realized I was still clutching my staff angled up across my body, and that the dragon end of the staff was in proximity to Justice's crotch. I squeezed the handle. And the four-inch blade, rigged up by Tacit, obediently snapped out of the dragon's mouth, positioned no more than a cat's whisker from Justice's most vulnerable area. The snap sound of the blade was most distinctive, and the area from which it originated caught Justice's attention so that he was wise enough to look down and see his peril. 
he froze in position. Coriolis, on the other hand, didn't notice his associate's jeopardy and was standing nearby my waist on the other side, apparently ready to hack me in two. I wouldn't if I were you. Their view of what was occurring was partly blocked by the position of the knight's own bodies, but others were starting to draw nearer to the little standoff we were having, and their eyes bulged when they saw the predicament. You wouldn't dare. Coriolis's sword was still pointed to bisect me, but he didn't sound terribly sure of that. Your swords each have to travel approximately six feet down in order to strike. My blade, on the other hand, has only half an inch to its target and requires not much of a thrust to strike home. Even a dying jab will suffice. The question presented is, can you kill me before the lowborn unmans the highborn? It was, in retrospect, an impressive speech considering that every word was an effort for me to form. My tongue felt as if it had swollen to twice its normal size, and my voice sounded thick to my ears. But obviously I had gotten my point across, so to speak. No one moved. For a moment, I thought we might be there forever. And we're back. I hope everyone enjoyed that sample. The other thing I just wanted to talk to you about was, you know, you've had such a spectacular career. I mean, I know that I read all of your Star Trek books when they were coming out, especially Imzadi and the uh, Q stories. And I know that you still have all of your uh, Star Trek comic books still in, in, a, in a box hidden somewhere in my parents' house. Having written, you know, genre, both Star Trek, comic books, as well as, you know, my favorite, you actually wrote one of my favorite episodes of Babylon 5, which is the one where oh, uh, Londo's wives show up. Um, ah, that, that was, that was, uh, and then eventually you also wrote what I would consider to be the definitive book that continued the saga of Babylon 5 after that, focusing on what happened to Londo after that who for oh, me is you. probably one of the most Falstaffian characters in all of science fiction. And you did such a good job of continuing that story. Joe Straczynski picked me to write that. Um, he, I mean, he, his attitude is that I'm actually part Minbari. <laughs> Since part Centauri, so, you know. Is it the hairstyle? Went, okay. or, well, whatever. Or the lifestyle? <laughs> yeah. I just would like to just pick your brain. How do you feel that uh, genre fiction is sort of developed over the course of your having written it for the last, you know, 30 or so years? I mean, do you find that we're in a good time for uh, sci-fi and fantasy, or do you feel like there needs to be a resurgence? Should there be a resurgence? I think there should always be a resurgence. I think we should always be looking for new material and new things to attract people. I think that genre has become so much a part of everyday life that it's almost ridiculous to think of it as some other sort of element mm. of fiction. I mean, if you look at the top 50 money-making movies of all time, 48 of them are science fiction, fantasy, or comic books. And, you know, that, that is kind of staggering to me, that people look at science fiction and fantasy and say, oh, it's genre, as if it's some sort of separate niche that's only supported by a relative handful of people, except, like I said, 48 out of 50 of the top money-making movies of all time are science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. How in the world is this even called genre anymore? It's become so freaking mainstream right. that the San Diego Comic Book Convention is covered every year in Entertainment Weekly. Then Newsweek and TV Guide and every online thing, you know, they all cover 
the freaking San Diego comic book convention. Like we say around here, the geeks have won and we get to do everything we want. Speaking of which, we around here also produce audiobook adaptations of comic books. We did a long run of DC novelizations for a while, as well as as Marvel. So some of our fans might be interested, and this is a question I'm sure you've probably been asked and you've answered a thousand times, but what inspired you to get rid of Aquaman's hand? (laughs) I wanted to do something very traumatic, you know, and... I discovered that, I mean, I don't remember what occurred to me to just say, I'm going to have Piranha chew off his hand. Mm-hmm. What specifically? I knew I wanted him to have a harpoon mm. on one hand. Because to me, him using a harpoon as a weapon was a nice way to have him striding both his heritages. I mean, you know, the harpoon is something that is generally thought of as something you use to kill sea life. You know, I mean, unless you're like an ancient Roman, you know, that's what the harpoon is for. It's for killing whales and and seals and sea life. And I like the idea of someone who has spent so much of his life in the sea turning around a harpoon and using it as a weapon against enemies of his. I thought that that would make a really unique statement. And I thought, well, how are we going to wind up with him having a harpoon instead of a hand? And that's pretty much what led to the the chain of thought of having the hand get chewed off by piranha. So the harpoon came before the hand going. Yes, that's that's pretty much right. And that was not an easy sell. I had to sell the people of D.C. on the entire concept. And I had an actual through plan in which eventually he would wind up getting his actual hand back. Um, a storyline that I was then not able to do because I wound up quitting the book. Right. Um, although they, they, you know, because they wouldn't, didn't want to let me do a storyline that I wanted to do, which a year or two later, you know, 12, several years later, they actually wound up doing with other people, and I was never credited, but, you know, what the hell. Well, that must have been frustrating. It's comic books. Just looking over, I'm just remembering you're also responsible for starting The Young Justice, which then eventually became a cartoon, which was also very yep. successful. Unfortunately, it only went for three seasons, but I think it was... Two. Two. Well, it was two of the strongest seasons of a comic book uh, animated series, probably since yeah, the original Young Batman. Yeah, a terrific series. Do you know why they canceled it? Why? The toys did well. Well, the, they sold in my house, so I'm not sure what happened <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've been uh, I've been shadowing you on your on your website, and it looks like Sir Apropos will be coming back in a fourth book. Can you give us any yes. kind of update on that? Yes, absolutely. In the fourth book, uh, Apropos winds up in what is, to all intents and purposes, ancient Egypt, which of course makes no sense considering he's a medieval character. But what the hell? Hmm. And um, he winds up in Egypt, and basically he winds up accidentally freeing the slaves and unleashing a mummy's curse. And the book will be called Pyramid Schemes. (laughs) Yeah, I love that title, too. Everyone loves that title. I gotta tell you, my favorite is still Woe to Wuhan. I'll I'll tell you something. That title was a mistake. Really? It was a mistake, but I shouldn't have called it Woe to Wuhan, because I was told by one reader that uh, she went to her local Barnes & Noble, or Borders, or whatever it was, and she asked if they had a book called Woe to Wuhan. And they looked it up, and they said, no, we do not have that book. And she said, are you sure it's supposed to come out? And they said, no, we definitely don't have it. And they, she, they said, what's the author's name? And she says, Peter David. 
and they look him up, and the customer service person kind of hits his head in disbelief, and he says, oh my God, the title was really the woe to woo. And then she says, yes, that's what I said. And he said, I thought you had a speech impediment, and I was looking up road to ruin. You know, and so that was kind of like a lesson to me, which is never give a book a title that can be misinterpreted by a sales clerk as something else, because it makes it just that much harder to find the thing. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, memo to me, never do that again. <laughs> We'll have to make sure we keep it straight on our website. I have to tell you, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Same here. I think that all of our fans are really going to enjoy this. If you were a fan of our Forest Kingdom series by Simon R. Green, or you're a fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail or Black Adder, I think that uh, Sir Apropos is going to have something for you. And I think that we've been very lucky to talk to Peter David. And uh, I'd just like to thank you for coming on our podcast today. Okay. It was not a problem. Happy to do it. All right. So you all can look for that book on sale at www.graphicaudio.net. And until next time, take care. We would like to thank Peter David for taking the time to talk to us. The first book of the Sir Apropos of Nothing series, self-titled Sir Apropos of Nothing, is now available in two parts. The next two books, The Woe to Wooin and Tongue Lashing, will be available later this winter. Also, David's Modern Author series will be produced in graphic audio later in 2016. For more information on how to purchase our graphic audio titles, please call us at 1-800-670-5220 or visit us on the web at www.graphicaudio.net where you can purchase our titles in audio CD format or in one of our download formats, MP3, M4B, and FLAC. And you can listen to your downloads anytime, anywhere with our free Graphic Audio Access app, available for Apple and Android devices. Make sure you sign up for our e-newsletter, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Twitter.